clubhouse. I'm Beth Kushnack. And I'm Caroline Daly. Welcome to Decorating the Set, from Hollywood to your home. For over 30 years, I've created settings for countless award-winning television series and feature films. As a set decorator, I'm a storyteller. My job is to compose visuals that both capture and enhance any story. Now, I want to help you capture and enhance your story. I'm on social media every day, and Beth's Instagram is a must-look for me. Over and over, I see fans asking her, how can I get the look in my own home inspired by something I've seen on screen? There's nothing I enjoy more than helping people create a space that allows them to best express themselves. Subscribing to Decorating the Set means you'll never have to tackle these projects alone. I'll be the decorator by your side. Hey, Beth. I know we've gotten so many questions this week on your Instagram, Back Home Decor, talking about the entertainment industry and how you got involved with becoming a set decorator. So today, I'm hoping you'll let us get a peek behind the velvet ropes and find out a lot more about how you actually got into this business. So I can tell, Beth, by your accent that you are clearly from Iowa. How did you know, Caroline? (laughs) I smell the corn on you. Could be. Summer corn. Well, summer corn is up your alley, though, yes, where you're actually from. I am a born and bred Manhattanite, and I think that's still a rarity kind of feels like it is. I think so. It's it's always seemed that way to me. Couldn't be happier to have been and be a native Manhattanite. Do people usually run off to the suburbs to have their kiddos? Is that what happens? You know, I'm not really sure, but some people have a distinct opinion about kids growing up in Manhattan that they don't want them to, but I think it shaped me and my life in the most positive of ways. I think it would have been a fantastic life. My own children would love to have access to Broadway on the regular. They are chomping at the bit for some Hamilton time. (laughs) Now that's relegated to Disney Plus, but we'll get back there. I really cannot wait. I know your mom worked in the entertainment industry. How were you surrounded by art and culture and style? How did that impact you at an early age? She did work in the industry. She was a press agent for some very big celebrities. I think when you grow up in Manhattan, you're pushed to grow up a little quicker. We were, as they say, latchkey kids. That means you come home from school, you're on your own. My mother did push for me to have some early arts education. I know that I was in a fantastic really forward-thinking art class at the Museum of Modern Art when I was quite young. That's amazing. I think just the culture of the city that never sleeps, all of that really afforded me visiting museums and galleries. And I remember the store windows of Bloomingdale's and Bendel's. Those were influencers on me at a very early age. I could imagine you walking down the street and just being bombarded with inspiration. Yeah, especially I I grew up in Midtown Manhattan and it was a short walk to Fifth Avenue and all the stores and there just always seemed to be something going on. All the schools that I went to, both public and private, were really focused on having solid art and drama programs. We get questions all the time about people who are interested in design or maybe they have a a kiddo interested in design and they're always asking us what they can do 
to try to foster that interest? Allowing your kid to have the ability at home to create both at home or at camps and after school programs is really important. I remember when my own daughter was born, reading a really interesting article about not overscheduling your child allowing your child to just be and be able to create. I really focused on that a lot. The idea of just leaving room for imagination and for creativity as opposed to necessarily scheduling it. It it can be a class, but I know right now during these times, we may not have classes available to us. So we might have to turn online. I know that many of the museums were offering virtual tours now. So for people who aren't in a location where they can actually do that, or maybe places are closed right now, then you can still have a lot of opportunity to be exposed to art. Absolutely. I have been watching many virtual tours of different countries, museums and galleries. A friend of mine who's an artist has participated in an online show. I'm also sent a lot of art to look at. That's a topic for another podcast when we'll talk about artwork and clearances and all that good legal stuff. But (laughs) I do see many, many artists. I do look at a lot of stuff online. So you're continuously exposing yourself to new designers, new artists, new creatives in different fields to just continue to keep your mind percolating, huh? I do. I'm really inspired just by the medium of Instagram. Looking at that quick visual, it's very much how I work in a a decisive manner, just looking at different photographs and knowing what the right thing is. And I feel like I keep that going as I'm scrolling through Instagram. I love it. So you're just like looking, you're like, like it, love it, love it, hate it, like it, love it. I could kind of see you doing that, Beth. (laughs) Love it some more, enough to really look into it. So when you see something that you love, you'll go ahead and delve in and like find out more about the artist. Absolutely. You creatives out there, send your stuff over to Beth. Let her lay her eyes on it. Who knows? Maybe she's going to discover you. Talk to me about your inspiration and where you might have found some mentorship as your curiosity of a young child grew into being more of a young adult. Well, I went to a small high school in Manhattan, graduated with 30 students, many of whom I'm still in touch with and friends with today. That small school and both the art teacher and the drama teacher there allowed me to really dive, dive into what I was interested in. My art teacher encouraged me to do advanced placement in studio art. It was the first time anyone in the school had done it. That set me up in an organized fashion of projects that I had to complete. My drama teacher, who was also our English teacher, found in me the desire to be a stage manager and to be a behind-the-scenes person. In those days, and kind of through all my education, I seemed to find myself to be the only one who wanted to be behind the scenes instead of right out there as an actor or director. Do you find that that's because a lot of people don't understand the different roles that really come into a production beyond them seeing an actor on the stage? They think, I want to be a part of a production, so I have to be the actor. That's probably true, Caroline. I'm sure it is because those behind-the-scenes jobs are not that talked about and not really taught in programs, more in specialty schools. My daughter went to a specialty high school that 
teaches art and drama, and you could actually be a tech theater major. Those individuals are, are very much exposed to the different jobs that are available out there. But if you're not, and if your kiddo shows any interest in production, would it make sense to at least start from the basics and all the different jobs that are a part of theater or are a part of production in general and acquaint your, your child or yourself about those different jobs? Absolutely. A lot of people have that bent for stage management or costume design production design, scenic design. That's, I think, why now more than ever, people are seeking out the answers to these questions. You know, how do I get involved in this aspect that is behind the scenes? So you are so lucky you had these mentors in Alan and Patty and being able to find different ways to express yourself visually and through production drama, right? Yes, absolutely. It was my way to find the confidence in what I wanted to do. You know, I think as as a, an artist, you have to stand on your own two feet, helped along the way with mentorship, but you have to feel confident in the statement in your art in what you are producing. When you were moving on from high school, were you looking at special programs or did you have an idea of any type of program that you might be interested in to continue to grow and learn more about production? In college, I did choose to end up at a school that had a major in scenic design. In those days, my work was more in the theater than in film. Except for one semester, I would say that if I had to do it all over again, I would look to get a much more liberal arts education. I think even now as a set decorator, if you're informed on many different topics, not necessarily all art and design, but history and English, and you learn to be a student that's organized, that understands deadlines, all of those things inform how you can work and function in the film business. Well, tell me about that one special semester. Now you've got me curious. Well, that one special semester, which was, I would call, a total life changer for me. I spent at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in Waterford, Connecticut. I was a student in the fall of 1980 of the National Theater Institute. The motto of the NTI program which really says it all of what we went through there, is risk, fail, risk again. That gives such power to people to be able to feel like it's okay if I try something and I make a mistake or it turns out to be the wrong path, but I'm empowered to try again and I don't have to be afraid to, to make mistakes. It is really a magical place. Tell me more about the Eugene O'Neill National Theater Institute program. I want to know more. You seem like every time I talk to you about it, I feel like you really get like a little spark in you. It's hard to imagine that something that happened in my college years would leave such a lasting impact on me, but it was just the most special time, the most important first step for me, really, because everything in my career kind of evolved from there. It was one semester that went by in a flash. Really, we were all committed to a seven-day-a-week program 
with no outside influences. Remember in those days, there were no cell phones. We all came to the program like sponges, just whatever we could absorb. And we all had incredibly different backgrounds. Most people there wanted to be actors. There were some people who wanted to be directors and writers. I was the only real design person. But everybody was just pushed beyond their comfort zone. It took us a while to get to know each other, although in retrospect now, it certainly wasn't that long because really the first couple of days we were there, we were put through a series of exercises to unleash our inner control. We just had to abandon all of that and let everything go. That sounds intense, Beth, and like kind of sassy. <laughs> it was so, it's so intense for a group our age, college age kids. The experience that started me off and also sort of put me over the edge was one of our professors took us out into the field at night, right at sunset, and pushed our boundaries, had us all sit in a field and told us to chirp like birds as a way to release our inhibitions. And Beth, you willingly did this? Oh my God, I fought every minute of it. <laughs> I, can't, I, I, I know your heart, Beth, enough to know that you're sitting there like, your eyes are closed, but they're rolling around. Like, Yeah, oh they were rolling. God. This city girl is sitting in a field, chirping like a bird, thinking, where am I? What's happened to me? What have I agreed to here? We went from that to doing things like trust exercises, where everybody would clasp their hands and you would have to fall back into the hands of your classmates. All kinds of things to build us up and to push our boundaries. I feel like as a native New Yorker, that sense of holding hands with strangers really feels like it comes... <laughs> From a deep sense of that's a natural thing for you to want to do, right? I don't know. After a while, it really affected all of us. It brought us so close as a group. We have so many memories together. I'll tell you, actually, when the pandemic started, I sent out an email along with my best friend from the group to as much of the group as we can still find and put together. And everybody sent back how they were, where they were, and how they're holding up. And I think we all know after all these years that we can just count on each other. I would tell anybody if they could have that kind of experience that could set their path, take advantage of it, do it, seek out those opportunities. Because to think of one short period of time having such a profound influence on one's entire life is pretty remarkable. The idea that one of your first thoughts were to reach out and like send out the call to everybody and make sure that everyone was okay and that they answered it. Mm -hmm. The proof is right there, right? That those trust exercises actually lasted. Yes, we're still supporting each other almost, well, this fall will be Okay, well, I, I say with a deep breath, this fall will be 40 years since I've had that experience with this particular group of people. No matter where we all end up, we're connected for the rest of our lives. What an amazing tribute to the Eugene O'Neill program that they have this impact on students and for people to actually check into this and make sure that they are aware that such programs exist. The National Theater Institute 
should be on anyone who's interested in this kind of situation. It should be on your list to go and visit and see what's going on there. And if you can't get there now, please get onto their website. They have a beautiful website with a lot of information. And I know that NTI would be so happy to have you come and visit. Check out some of their graduates because I know that there's quite a number of you out there. We're a great group of a lot of people working in all different fields, but also still in the entertainment industry. Heed that motto, risk, fail, risk again. I feel like that's become ingrained in you, Beth. Even in doing our podcast, I feel like that's part of us, right? As like the, let's just get out there and do it. If something goes wrong, we try it again. It's true. I never thought I would be a blogger. I never thought I would be on Twitter. I never thought I would be on Instagram. (laughs) I never thought I would have a podcast. And here I am. It's amazing, completely amazing. How many set decorators were in your group of 30? Just myself, really. So is set decorating a very large profession? No, actually at NTI, because I was working more in the theater, you're considered a scenic designer. In the film and television industry, there's a production designer, which kind of equates to the architect. And then there's a set decorator that equates to being an interior designer for film and TV. It's a very limited, small craft that's based mostly in the United States, in New York, Atlanta, some in North Carolina, in Los Angeles, of course, and Chicago. Many set decorators, either from Los Angeles or New York, go on location to work. And all the different states kind of work in a different way. New York combines many different categories like construction and drapery, hardware. We sort of cover all the areas. Okay. In Los Angeles, some of those categories are done by different departments, mostly on the back lots. Some states are non-union states. Some states, again, like New York and California, full-on union states. There's a variety, although in the end, as a craft, as a profession, you're talking about probably three or 400 people who do this to make a living. There are photo stylists, which can be a little different. Okay. And again, there are set designers for people working in the theater. You know, the interesting thing is that these small kind of crafts were always behind the scenes, as we say, and not a part of the general public's awareness. I'm happy to be here answering any questions about film and television and exactly about my craft. Our craft's professional guild is called the Set Decorator Society of America. You can also look that up online and see interviews with set decorators and learn more about our craft. That is a hot tip. You got to like slow down there. So the Set Decorator (laughs) Society of America, SDSA. You're saying stuff like guilds. You guys are like Freemasons. (laughs) (laughs) It is remarkable that this is such a small group of working professionals actually doing this job because there is so much content out there that's being produced. I'm so wowed. It just seems kind of frantic. Working on one job is 
kind of beyond comprehension in terms of the hours uh, that we do work in the film business. Let me stress that for everyone asking me about the craft, it is so not as glamorous as one thinks. I can assure you that. Much like podcasting, Beth. It's less glamorous than one thinks. (laughs) It seems like podcasting is kind of like one of my old movies, A Day in the Life of Howard Stern from Private parts and I imagine you in these fabulous studios now I know that's not the case really we're really just in our underwear pretty much yeah (laughs) yes believe me working as a set decorator is not just shopping and not just hanging out with celebrities well that is very good to know for those of you out there who are looking to get into this field don't go for the glitz and glam you better come for the hard work and the problem solving when people say to me you can change my life tell me how to be a set decorator and no kidding i usually say don't think about that find (laughs) something else to do but if you must if you are determined and led to this craft, there are many things to learn and to accomplish to be able to have it in your life as a career. So speaking of careers, let's talk about your first job. How did you start your career? Back to the O'Neill Theater Center. I was extremely influenced by my playwriting professor there, David Berry, the late great, incredibly talented David Barry, who wrote a play that was produced at the WPA Theater in Manhattan. After I graduated from college, he helped me get a job at the WPA Theater. And after we did David's show, the next show that went into the theater was the original off-off-Broadway version of Little Shop of Horrors. So you actually worked on the original one? I did. It was a way to kind of combine my interest in backstage work and stage management work and even my little crafty side because I made spores for the plants and the leaves that dropped out of boxes on the ceiling in the theater. We worked on the show at the WPA Theater. And then when it became a huge overnight success, we moved to the Orpheum Theater in the East Village. What was it like to move over to the East Village from just a smaller theater? It was really an incredible amount of fun. We were the talk of the town. Some of us are still in contact today, the cast and the crew. We were able to keep the show in a size and a scale that was appropriate. It was never a show that could be done on Broadway. We wanted an intimate house, and that's what the Orpheum Theater was. It served the staging and the scariness and the size of the plant perfectly. When we moved to the Orpheum, I was a puppeteer. I was the killer branch (laughs) in the part of the show where Audrey is eaten by the plant. I'm puppeteering and moving around the killer branch from backstage. And I think in those days for me, the fact that we could see the audience from my post backstage, it was just so thrilling, like live theater can be, just goosebumps every single show and all the celebrities that were coming to see the show. And it was just a moment in time that I'll never, ever forget. How would you say that doing the live theater prepared you to be able to move into things like TV or film production? 
especially given that live audience staring right at you. I can imagine your adrenaline must have been like through the roof. My adrenaline was through the roof. But in those days, as a non-equity stage manager and a killer branch, I wasn't exactly making the kind of money <laughs> I love that you say as a killer branch. <laughs> <laughs> I was a very talented killer branch. Yeah, maybe we should um, put that on your IMDb, like killer branch. That's an important portion. It's true. It's true. <laughs> you know, I don't know. In in those days, the allure of the film industry was a step up. You know, now it's it's so interesting going through most of my career in New York, where part of the beauty of working in New York in TV are the actors that are available to come and be a part of any show that I've worked on. The same thing for other shows that shoot in New York. It's been a return to the theater. But in those days, getting a job on a TV show or a movie, that was the ultimate goal, really. Film was the pinnacle, right? You wanted to yes, be in a movie. Yes, absolutely. And TV was like, Meh. and then, you know, if you were like a very, very serious, uh, studied student of the theater, then that's where you wanted to be. But now I feel like I'm, I'm hearing, you know, actors and really everyone in every role of production talks about getting back to theater and doing those things that sort of gave them their foundation. Right. And now doing TV as well. I mean, you know, the last solid 15 years, New York has become a TV town. I convinced myself that I would have a more scheduled lifestyle if I got out of doing movies and did TV when my daughter was young. So that's how I ended up doing this probably 15 years. Through the years that I've been doing this, it's kind of gone full circle. Starting in the theater, again, that really pushes you to think on your feet, have an experience that you can apply in other areas. As you're encouraging people to look into those early jobs in theater, what other early jobs did you have that may have impacted your career? You know, when I was working on Little Shop, I actually had a day and a night job. Little Shop was my night job. My day job was working at an iconic home decor store, which is named Conrad's. It was created by Terence Conrad, based in England. It was the first retail store in the Citicor Center. Being around all of that really high design, yet completely approachable price points. Conrad's was a store similar to what Ikea is today. Working in retail, that was my only experience working in retail, it showed me another whole aspect of design. Merchandising, what the buyers focused on, what was popular, what people came to seek out there. It sort of started to train my eye as well with what I was drawn to the most. The other thing that was kind of a blessing and a curse in the particular store was Terrence Conran's concept was so right on and so ahead of its time, but he really created the space. So you had to walk in one door and go through the entire store to exit. So smart, Terrence. Yeah. What it created was a kind of subconsciousness. It allowed the shopper to not feel like everything was being thrust at them, but it was a way to get them to move and to shop 
It's actually a way that I recommend people shop for home decor, that they follow the same path in a retail store that they're used to shopping in. It makes you feel like you've seen everything. I know for myself, that's always an issue. Like, did I miss an aisle? Or what if I don't find this? Or I need this for the set? Merchandising both going back to store windows that I used to see. And in those days, another big influencer for me was the art of Peter Max. All those things in stores that kind of symbolize the period, because it was a very distinct time period in design. Terence Conran is kind of equated in home decor to what Mary Quant created in fashion. Of course, as it always goes, so many of those styles are completely back in vogue today. Good design always comes back around. Yep. Conran's was that for me. There, I was really learning about display and about merchandising. And then I would go to Little Shop at night. So I was... <laughs> you were a busy lady. <laughs> I was exhausted, but I was young and energized. Right. You take your adrenaline rush from the theater and rush over yep. to Conrad's. I love it. Exactly. One of the quotes that I heard about Conrad's that really stands out to me is that good design is 98% common sense and 2% aesthetics. And that's something when I see your designs that I love because so much of what you do is so timeless. It's so beautifully done, but you often have a little touch of whimsy somewhere, a little touch of, of something that just draws my eye and makes me think like, oh, what's that one about? It just gives a little extra interest. I try to do that. And you know what we call those things? What do you call those things? Caroline moments? <laughs> <laughs> no, in in my world, Caroline, we call them impulse items. Oh. When we're shopping, usually at the end of a long, hard shop where I've had my truck come to the store and we've filled hamper upon hamper and we're exhausted. I usually do one more round, one more quick round, or as we're approaching the checkout, there I see that oddball thing, that that item that everyone says, what the heck is that? <laughs> For me, I call it my impulse item. And I can tell you that it may not get used immediately, my impulse item, but I'd say 10 out of 10 times that impulse item ends up on a set because I just hark back to having it in my shop or in my mind and it always ends up playing a role. Can you think of a, a specific set that you're thinking of where you've placed an impulse item where fans could possibly go peep it out on a set? Hmm. Let's think about one. Oh, yes. Yes. Now, you might not see this in photos. It's funny. Sometimes you see the same viewpoint, both in still shots and in episodic TV, in Alicia Florek's living room, behind French doors, there's a very small black old cabinet that I dressed with a lot of books and a lot of pottery. That's definitely a signature moment for me. I tend to go to some certain colors of pottery, green, white, and a kind of cornflower blue, which is my favorite color. One of my impulse items was a horse head in black. So it was a pottery piece, but shiny. 
that felt like the same vibe and the same period of the vases and the pottery in the cabinet. So when we were dressing that particular set, which was done incredibly quickly, really was top layer of life, almost done in a weekend. You're like a magician, Beth. It's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, that, that, was, that was a rough one. I remembered that black piece, that horse head that didn't really read like a horse head, more like just an objet, we'll call it. What's an objet? Okay. <laughs> I love it. Again, not a place that the camera usually is seen. But when you think about the top of cabinets, when you think about the top of a break front or a bookshelf holding your books, your TV, I know people sometimes put plants up there, artificial plants, but I go for some kind of art piece to draw your eye up. We put that piece up there. It was just like the perfect moment the perfect place for an impulse item. Again, that's something that I do to just say, okay, this whole section is finished. Whether the camera is going to see that or the audience is going to see that, I guess I actually do it for myself because <laughs> I'm going to see it. <laughs> like, forget that. Forget all the rest that's of that. Right. This is my cherry on top. That's right. It's my impulse item that finishes off the, the piece, but I also do it for the actors. That could be one of my, my favorites, but that happens a lot. It's like all a part of our routine. It just seems like it's like your signature at the end. Like you do your whole portrait or your whole painting. And then at the end, you're like, Beth Kushnick. And you put that horse head. Right. right. It's my exclamation oh, point. Jay. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds very Harry Potter. <laughs> like spell. <laughs> oh, Jay. You just like shoot it out. <laughs> I love that. This week, Beth, we have a question from home. We have written in from Shelly from New York. She says, my friends tell me I have a good eye for design, but I don't have any formal training. I'd like to prepare myself better to be able to work as a set decorator or even an interior designer. What do you recommend? I would say that this is probably the most perfect time of our lives to take the time for yourself and study. Think about what you're looking at. Look into different periods and styles, different categories that an interior designer and a decorator work in. Everything from online catalogs to interior design books that you don't even really have to buy these days. They offer you a look inside so many pages. I'd say maybe do this exercise. Think about this. Why don't you pick a movie that's probably known more for its decor than for its special effects, say. And I would watch the movie once with just no thought about it. Watch the movie, enjoy the movie. But then I would rewatch the movie with the eye of a set decorator or the eye of a designer. Note the choices that are made. Listen to my podcasts and think about what you see on my Instagram. Look for those things. Not necessarily looking for gaffes, as many people do, big mistakes <laughs> that are made. Oh, people make a whole hobby out of that. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I get questions and emails about that. But look at the individual items and think about the choices that have been made and why. You know, is it about the ambiance of the, the scene? Of course, we know that it's always got to serve the script. 
whether it's a period film or a contemporary film, start to look at these things and look at what the camera sees. The director sets up a shot in a particular way because that's what he wants you to see. Look and really be observant of this in a in a technical way. Make your notes and see what you can see. That is a tremendous exercise to go through because I think a lot of people will start recognizing different choices that are being made and may even be able to make connections from one movie to another and maybe be surprised in such a small field that a set decorator had worked on multiple shows that they're actually enjoying and, and maybe be able to find some through line there. Absolutely. I think we all have our own individual style. And first we we serve the particular job or the script, but you can look for my impulse items on, on my IMDb list. That sounds like an amazing scavenger hunt to send them. No, be like, <laughs> find Beth's objects. See if you can find it in this scene. I love that. That's very where's Waldo of us. Okay, Beth, so we have given so much good information to our listeners in this episode, but I want us to distill it down to three takeaways. So what would be our first takeaway that you hope someone remembers? I think in early life, for anyone who wants to commit to the arts or just even dabble in it, the best thing that you can do is find your inspiration, find a specific mentor, and find a mentor that you really click with. I would encourage you if you're in a situation where you have an advisor, maybe you're a college student, if that advisor was just given to you, but not someone that you feel you've clicked with, seek out somebody else. You know, I, I think that people are very open when it's expressed to them that you want to learn from them and you want to be influenced by them and study with them. I would try that and never be afraid to throw it out there. You know, what's the worst that can happen is somebody will say, I'm too busy or not available. Which please, these days, everybody's got some availability. That's right. You know, this is the time to do this work to approach people, to send that email that you might not have sent, you would be really surprised who's sitting at home and wants to hear from people. It's uh, pretty amazing. Okay, Beth, so talk to me specifically about NTI and, and what you feel like the takeaway from the program you want to pass on to listeners. At NTI, I think it was my first time of really understanding that in many ways, creating theater, art, it really takes a village. Just like being a set decorator now, I interact with every department, every single department on a film or a television show. And it's very important to be knowledgeable and really understand the role of everyone's job on a production. So you can fulfill your role as a problem solver that's what happens for me. Inevitably, I really interact with every department and they come to me for my ideas and for my concepts of problem solving to not necessarily be interested in one department over your own, but to be exposed and to see what it's like and have to push yourself to be an actor, be a director, but still your priority is to be a designer 
it helped me so much to understand how we function in a group setting as creators. I am very grateful for you to have introduced NTI to my world because I think their motto of risk, fail, risk again will really sit with me as something that I don't need to be scared to try to make new things happen in my world. Just go for it. Beth sat and chirped in a field, for God's sake. If I can do that, <laughs> believe me, I trust oh that you can all go out there and find your path to your creativity, whether it becomes your career, whether it's something that you do as a hobby or for fun, whether you do one show a year in community theater or try to get yourself on one film or a TV show and whether it's for you or it's not for you, it will teach you the life lessons and skills that you can apply to so many areas. That's amazing advice for sure, Beth. I, I think that there's so many people who need that push to not stay in their in their comfort zone. Um, and I know that that's something that theater gave you as well, that feeling of getting out of your comfort zone. So what would be a good takeaway from that? Well, most importantly, it really taught me how to be organized. And it took probably a skill that I knew was inside of me, but brought it to the forefront to be able to make decisions quickly and efficiently and really to be flexible. Because to this day, I am a constant problem solver due to my job and my experience. And it's helped me in many ways. Beth, I feel like you've given us so much good information. And I've got to tell you, you want to know what my takeaway is? I'm sure. Gonna out there, I'm going to do a long, hard shot, Beth. Okay? It's going to be grueling. <laughs> okay? I'm going to come home. I'm going to tell my family. I'm going to tell them, listen, y'all. I went through a long, <laughs> hard shop today. And I want to present you with my objet everyone. Well, you better wear your mask and you better socially distance. <laughs> you know I will. I'm a revealing in grand fashion. And I may even start hiding objects around my house for people to try I to can't find wait. a moment. And I'm going to say, Beth has inspired me, people, to try this new impulse placement, if you will. <laughs> and you know, you can do it online as well. Oh my well. God, of course. And you know what? Online shopping can be the most fun. And I cannot wait till we have our episode telling people tips and tricks about online shopping. Coming soon. As always, you can listen to all of our episodes of Decorating the Set at podclubhouse.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to please rate, review, and subscribe. Five stars, people. Please send me your questions to my Instagram at backhomedecor, B-A-K home decor. And I'd like to share with you a great quote from Denzel Washington this week. He says, to anyone who feels like they've wasted the time during quarantine because they didn't write a book or learn a second language or get their bodies in shape, I have good news. Quarantine ain't over. Get back inside. <laughs> oh, Denzel, you are so smart. <laughs> So watch movies, look at design, and shop online, and get all your creative juices flowing, and come back for my next podcast next week. Thank you guys so much for listening. Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home is a Pod Clubhouse original production, recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com. Pod Clubhouse.